Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to this episode of the Mental Health Professionals Network presenting In Conversation With. My name's Ruth Vine. I'm a psychiatrist by background. I'm based in Melbourne, but I currently work with the Commonwealth Department of Health in the role of Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Mental Health, a a role that was created in the context of COVID. But today I'm just ever so delighted to be joined by Mary O'Hagan, who is the inaugural, I think that's fair, Mary, the inaugural Executive Director, Lived Experience in the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division at the Department of Health in Victoria. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. This is the first, but I hope it's not the last of our meetings. Right. Good to be here. Mary, you and I are sort of, we both sit on executives and and have sat on executives probably now for a number of years. We've been in those leadership roles, but we've sort of applied different lenses to help us understand the mental health system and the ways in which consumers experience it. You know, I come from a very clinical background. I've worked in forensic mental health and acute general mental health. You've clearly brought the lived experience, but also worked within New Zealand as another system. So today, what I'd like us to do, Mary, is explore a little bit about, I guess, some of the new areas where lived experience is taking a really leadership role, some of the new service models. And if we're up to it, let's get into some of the challenges and tensions around some of those respective roles. So, so Mary, maybe to start, I mean, just because I don't know if everyone will be familiar with you, if you wouldn't mind to give a brief introduction to yourself, and then maybe we might move straight into some of those new areas for innovation and development. Yeah, sounds good. My background is I came into mental health as a user of services. I use services for, oh, probably for about eight or nine years, between about the ages of 18 and 27, and I was in, a, in and out of hospital. My life was a train wreck, and it was an incredibly formative experience. I, you know, life's been a walk in the park since then. And one of the things that was so difficult about it, it wasn't just the subjective experience, it was the way services and society and other people responded that was incredibly difficult. And that's really the thing that has been my mission in life since then, in the various roles I've been in, is to try and bring about change in the way people respond to people who experience mental distress. Yeah, thanks, Mary. That, I mean, that, And I'm presuming that those years are now some years behind yes, you. They are, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and that there will have been... Uh, and perhaps partly because of you, there will have been system changes and societal changes since then. So, so let's bring. Well, your... I don't, well, I don't think there's been enough, Ruth. No, no, not enough. Not enough. I, I, not in enough. fact, in fact, in some ways, things have, some things have got worse. Yeah. Uh, one thing that has got worse is risk management in mental yeah. health. That's got worse, and you can tell a sign of that is that the rate of compulsory treatment has risen. Uh, since the days I use services. So, Mary, I just, I can feel that we're going to have this sort of explosion <laughs> in areas, which, which is great. I, I don't have a problem with that. And I'm going to say it right now, Mary, will you be up to episodes two and three of this? Yes, certainly. 
Yeah. All right. In that case, we, we don't need to cover everything today. But so, so, so let's, let's start, though, um, and you, you've already raised with some of the things that have gone not as, as we would have hoped, and I'd absolutely agree with you. And, in fact, I think that's why Victoria ended up with a Royal Commission because, mm. and I lived and experienced that as a service director. So let, let's park that for a minute and look at where you are now in your new role and developing new and innovative service models. And can you talk a little bit about what your job is now? Well, I mean, when I was coming out of services and becoming an advocate, I wouldn't have imagined in my wildest dream that a job like this could exist. So that's really, uh, and in fact, I wrote that in my letter of application. Uh, so I think that this job is a uh, an unprecedented opportunity for someone in my position to have real influence. And the job I've got is, is I lead within the mental health and wellbeing division. There are several branches. I lead the lived experience branch, which has about 20 FTEs in it. And most of those people have their own lived experience, either as um, a user of services or as uh, families or supporters. And our job at the uh, lived experience branch is firstly to stand up the uh, Royal Commission recommendations that involve, you know, the development of lived experience agencies. I mean, one of them is a peer-led crisis service. Another one is a series of family centres around Victoria. And there's a few others. Uh, But the other thing we're we do is we provide advice across the division to the other branches and particularly when it comes to, you know, the initiatives, the reform initiatives that they're responsible for. Wow. (laughs) I'm glad you've got 20 EFT. Part of me just doesn't know where to start really. But just thinking back to your team, your team of people with lived experience of mental illness and or psychological distress, lived experience of caring for someone. Do you as director feel that those different perspectives can be combined to create a whole, you know, the the perspectives of carer and consumer, or do you think there inevitably need to be different pathways for them? Not at all. When I started in this area, the families were incredibly conservative. In fact, we used to say they were more psychiatric than the psychiatrists. They loved the medication, they loved the biological explanation because I think they felt blamed and it let them off the hook. They relished compulsory treatment because it was like a a way to get their relative to jump the queue or to services. I don't think they really liked the force about it. I think they just wanted their families to get uh, into services. And they were really anti-recovery. They had no hope. They thought uh, we were spreading false hope when we talked about recovery. so But most of those people have gone. I don't know where they've gone. Maybe they've uh, got older and um, met their end. I don't know. But um, I find um, the people from a family background in the department and the people I'm working with on the peaks, they don't think like that. In fact, our thinking is much more aligned. Uh, you know, they're not in favour of um, a lot of the things that the old family movement people were in favour of. They're, they're very much focused on social justice and human rights, which is where 
the consumer movement has always come from. Yeah, no, thanks, Mary. So you just talked about two particular models, I think, the the sort of crisis respite model and, and the family centre model. Do you feel that both of those are within reach, so to speak, of being stood up? And as a secondary question, because you did just then mention, you know, more, more like a psychiatrist than the psychiatrist, that their engagement with clinical services will be productive? Uh, well, th- the, the peer-led crisis service that is being p- procured at the moment, one of the uh, requirements in the Royal Commission report, which is kind of being read like the Bible. Yes, uh, I, 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 I mean, agree. it's like a Protestant <laughs> reading the Bible, you know. <laughs> Honestly, but anyway. Um, yeah, no, let's not go there. So, so, and this is based on the New Zealand model. It states that the crisis service needs a relationship with the area mental health, with an area mental health service. Now, there are tensions in that, uh, most definitely, and they just have to be quite carefully navigated, I think, and uh, that's been the case with peer-led crisis services in New Zealand. But what they found in New Zealand was that the clinicians were very sceptical about them and very sort of, uh, you know, were putting that risk lens on to them all the time. And they've often come round to the point of view that actually these are really safe places, that we know that people have a much better time in them, uh, the guests have a much better time, but also the staff do and that there are incredibly few what we call critical incidents or sentinel events or whatever you people call them in these places. I think when the clinical people see how they work, they lose a lot of their scepticism and they become supporters. You know, Mary, one of the things when I sort of saw this happening was I sort of thought, oh, no, this is ridiculous. I, I went to Canada in 2004 and I visited a peer-led, lived experience-led crisis centre in Toronto oh, yeah. that had yeah. that had really close links with, I think it was St Michael's Health Service from yeah. memory. Yeah. And it, it was well-established. It, um, it was highly regarded. It was good. And that was 2004, which, you know, we have to sort of think is very close to 20 years ago. Do you get why Victoria has been so slow in this one? Well, everyone's been slow. Look, in New Zealand, these should be everywhere, these places, and uh, they're not. Uh, Okay, Victoria's been a bit slower than others, but um, they're they're not around the rest of Australia. They're very rare in a lot of parts of the world. And my big concern about Victoria is that we we don't just have one of these, that this is the beginning of a whole new model of crisis service delivery, and it's not just a little trophy Indeed. Yeah. And again, if I went back in my history, when um, I was a fairly baby psychiatrist, I, I, Mary, I, I became a psychiatrist in 1990. So um, I did my registrar years during the 80s. Yeah. And, and at that time, of course, Victoria was emerging from yeah. deinstitutionalisation. And in fact, there were cat teams and attached to every cat team, from my memory, was a crisis respite sort of house. Yeah. But it was clinically led. It, it, yeah. it wasn't lived experience led. But nonetheless, the, the idea was that if you were experiencing a crisis, there was somewhere you could go for a short period of time that was not the hospital ED, yeah. it was not an inpatient unit, yeah. and you would have quite intensive, a, a sort of, I guess it was a, a hybrid hospital in the home crisis respite centre. 
Do you see that these are akin to that but peer-led or lived experience-led rather than, if you like, cat or clinician-led? Well, I mean, in the sense that they're community-based, they're intimate places, they don't have lots of beds in them. Uh, And uh, yes, I think there are similarities. I, I think the philosophy might be quite different in some ways. I think, you know, in a peer-led crisis service, we don't call people patients, we call them guests. So there's quite a different sort of approach. But yes, at, at the basic level, there there are similarities. Yeah. Mary, I, I want to shift us a little. You, you mentioned before that, the in a way, the old guard had moved on, I don't know, and you said you're not sure where they'd gone. We had a sort of brief pre-meeting and I asked you a question about mental illness. And mental illnesses, you know, there's lots of mental illnesses in my view because I'm a psychiatrist. But one of the ones that is perhaps, I guess, most challenging for families and for the community and for hospitals are people who experience psychosis, um, whether that be bipolar affective disorder or Mm. schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia, be that as it may, a, a sort of changed understanding of reality. And mostly there's an acceptance that part of the response to that is biological treatment alongside psychological and, of course, social. What's your take, particularly when you're talking about these new models, of how people who are experiencing that absolutely altered sense of reality, that, you know, who's talking to them, who's talking about them, what is safe and what is not safe, how do you think we should change our understanding of that in these new models of service? You know, I think one of the hugely corrosive concepts that we've had in mental health, one of them has been lack of insight. And of course, often we say this of people who have psychosis. And and what it really means is you don't agree you have an illness and, and therefore you don't see a need for treatment. And I find that an incredibly discriminatory approach to people. It doesn't take into account the fullness of that subjective experience. It just it just invalidates it. And, you know, having experienced psychosis myself, it's an incredibly powerful human experience. And you're certainly struggling to make sense of it. And then you've got these people who feel they have a monopoly on the truth saying, well, you've got an illness. And in fact, I never thought of my psychotic experiences as as an illness. They were a crisis of being. They were real existential crisis. They didn't feel like an illness to me. So I think we've got to get rid of this idea of lack of insight. It's just an altered reality to me and an incredibly powerful experience for people and powerfully bad and powerfully wonderful at times too. See, what we get is we get a system that receives people who, you know, are psychotic, and all they have in their toolkit is the Mental Health Act, drugs and locked wards. That's all they have. Quite honestly, they they are the risk management tools of our system, and we put an awful lot of resource into those tools, and what I would really love to see is a system that is much more responsive, much more flexible and prepared to stay engaged with people and find out what it is that people really want 
And if we had much more in the way of home and community-based crisis services or, you know, safe houses where people who are feeling suicidal can go without having to be referred, or just sort of peer support, community connections, I mean, housing, employment, all those things, we spend about 2 or 3% of our mental health money on those things that are very, very important to people and about 95% on the clinical system. And we've got it all round the wrong way as far as I'm concerned. So that's a rather rambling answer. But um, I do think that we can't just keep on having these institutional responses. We need flexible responses. What happened to you and how can we help? Rather than go through that door because that's the only one we've got and by the way, we'll put you under the act as you go through it. Mary, thank you. Of course, I'm going to pull you up on a couple of those things. First, I'm going to say housing and employment shouldn't come out of the health dollar. It should have come. It should come out of the housing and employment dollar. But you know, that, that, let's let's leave that for politicians. But I have to pull you up on the toolkit because, to me, and I I think back to my, you know, I confess I'm not a very good psychiatrist at the moment because I'm a bureau. I'm basically a bureaucrat. Um, but but when I was a psychiatrist and. Um, engaged with patients, I actually think the most potent tool in my toolkit was empathy and engagement and forming a relationship that was supporting and containing and perhaps not completely entering into a person's experience, but being able to understand what that experience was doing to their thinking and to their sense of fear and safety. So I, I would hate you to say that the toolkit is a drug and an act and a, and a locked ward because it's not, it's the relationship. And to me, that's the central, the central yeah. part of why on earth would I want to be a psychiatrist unless I wanted to be curious about people, engage with people and use my most, yeah. my most you know, my most empathic well, skills to understand at, that person. At 2am or when you've got uh, a 15-minute appointment and you've got an overcrowded um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah more, no, 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 no. Then, then the, they're, your, they're your basic tools. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I'm just yeah. saying that and those uh, are yeah. the, the the concrete constructs. But yeah. we should not lose sight of the relationship because, and this is and this is this is great because this is where our different lenses happen. That I would say those things that you've talked about, legislation and an inpatient unit and drugs are. They're not the tools. Clearly, we use them. We use them a lot, and you would say we use them too much. But they should be used to enable the relationship that enables understanding, that enables a person's choices to be reasserted. Well, I've never known coercion to be a good relationship um, and trust-forming way of doing things. Usually, it's very bad for relationships. Can I interrupt? (laughs) Because I was fortunate enough to work in forensic psychiatry where people are are with us for years, decades yeah. even. Yeah. In forensic psychiatry, it's a little bit different because the the coercion is imposed by the correctional system yeah. Yeah. and the relation comes from the clinical system. But let's not, let's not get, get ourselves buried here. We might come back to this on another episode. One of the other areas, Mary, that I think you're very fortunate in being able to uh, explore is that whole area of leadership, Yep. and lived experience leadership. And indeed, you're placed in a leadership role. You know, you're, you're, there you are, you're heading up the team, it's your job. How do you see that 
collaboration. You know, we, we talk a lot about collaboration and collegiality. How do you see that working across our various parts of the system? I think the Royal Commission report was actually almost marinated in lived experience leadership. I, I do hear from the clinical world that they're a bit worried about their place in the sun, which is a curious um, and interesting response. But of course, you do you do have to take that a bit seriously. If we want to have leadership in the system, we need to bring along other people with us or else we won't retain it. There'll be a backlash mm-hmm. and we'll just end yeah. up back where we were. And there are plenty of clinicians that, um, you know, perhaps the more progressive end who uh, we can um, work in partnership with and I think influence their practice. And there's a lot of clinicians who aren't happy with the way things are who are very unhappy with what they do and mm. would like more on their toolkit. And I'm, I'm working with our chief clinical advisor to see how we can model a kind of a partnership approach within the division but also on the wider sector. So I think, I think it's really important that we bring those clinicians along who have some understanding and who are at the more progressive end. You know, thank you. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, again, speaking as a person who was working in what I think was the most underfunded um, service in Melbourne in terms of per capita spend, I know that the people I worked with did not... This is not what they went into mental health to do, to be so constrained and the service had become so narrow and so limited in its scope, so limited, if you like, in its toolkit, that, you know, heaven help us, we were looking back to halcyon days in the 1990s, which was crazy, like, but, but yet I can remember again as a registrar being in a place, La Rundle it was called, but we oh, had yeah, art therapy, yeah. we had Reseda House, we had community-based services, we, you know, there was really Toad Hall, we had exciting things happening in a miserable institution, but people were feeling very fulfilled in in engaging in a different way, Mary, because it was, you know, it was 30 years ago. But, but I, I, I think that is a real dilemma, how to make those people who, if you like, were working in the system that was in decline, not through any, prob- any fault yeah. of their own, how to make them not feel like the enemy. It's not their fault. It was the fault of, if you like, a, a yeah, decline yeah. of funding. And, and how do you think uh, well, your you know, role think, is, is, is going to sort of yeah. bring those people on board? I mean, there's a term called moral injury. Yes, there uh, is. And I, and I think we need to understand that these systems are also hard on many of the people who, who work in them. I mean, they're, they're, they're hardest on the people who use them. And we just need to understand that... Um, there's a bit of recovery that has to happen among the um, among the current mental health workforce, actually. I'll never forget a, uh, something I read about this uh, by a psychiatrist called Sandra Bloom, who really talked about the way systems uh, have a trauma response and the way they respond, mm. a bit like the, re- the trauma response of the people who come into them. The whole system has a trauma response and it's kind of, uh, numbing and hypervigilance. Mm. And, of course, uh, that is uh, very bad for people 
you know, to be in that environment where they respond in these rather exaggerated ways to things. So, yeah, I think uh, we do need to recognise that there has been a level of, uh, for any decent person working in some of these places, having to put people into seclusion rooms, hold them down and inject them, be in a locked place with them. Well, if that was me, I'd, I'd be very... I'd, yeah, I'd pretty, be pretty, pretty upset. I'd be pretty up. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be feeling good about myself or about yeah. the system or about what I was doing. So do you think your your role has a role in reassuring those clinicians that their intentions were good but their system was bad? Or do you think there you're are part of cl- the, the rescue troop? No, because I think there are, there are I mean, there are, there are a variety of people working in the system. Some of them are... Uh, are good people who've been expected to do what I'd call bad things, and some of them aren't such good people. So I'm not I'm not there to rescue them, but I think if people have a level of discomfort about their role in the system, that's a good sign to me. And and Mary, again, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift because as as, yeah. as as I said at the beginning, I'm I'm hoping that I'm gonna lure you back to yeah. further conversations. But you've now been in your role. Is it three months already yet? Four months, yeah. Four months, there you yeah. go. And do you feel in your role that you're, well, I guess, you know, that you're there, that you're, that you're an equal member of the executive, that you're, you know, you're part of, part of the divisional plan to bring this reform forward and that your voice is being heard? Uh, yes, I do. I do. I, uh, you know, I, I've been reflecting in my earlier years and, I'd sit on committees with people and um, and uh, you'd just think, you know, you knew where the power was in the room and it wasn't with you. And, look, I don't feel that uh, in, in my current role, but it's quite interesting because some of the staff feel it quite a lot, which uh, is an interesting thing. They feel, you know, that they're not they're not being listened to or, you know, that there there isn't a an equal power balance or whatever. Uh, so, so in some ways, um, position itself protects you from some of those feelings. And in fact, you've got to be careful not to throw your power yes. around yeah. as well. So, but I do think the department is not as tough a place to work as a person with lived experience as the clinical services are. Yeah, I think they're. I think they're really tough. So yeah, for, no, for I, those I, consumer consultants. Yeah, um, well, yeah. I, 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 I sort of agree with you. And in fact, I think, again, you know, I wouldn't say it, it's the fault of the other people in the place. I think, I think, I think they're tough places to work at the yeah, moment yeah. and they're under a lot of pressure and, yeah. and their change is not easy and change is not easy when you're trying to develop a workforce. But look, the other area that I wanted to touch on what one of the things that I've been involved in Mary recently is is a review of the Million Minds Mission Mental Research Future Fund and 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 so research I think we all say that there should be more and better research into whole you know swathe of areas within mental illness and mental ill health but one of those of course is how should lived experience be engaged in research and uh, there's a whole, you know, as you know, there's reams of evidence, be it, you know, longitudinal or epidemiological or clinical or clinical trials. 
What's your take, if I might ask, on how lived experience people should be engaged in research? And are you familiar with the Alive Centre? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's a particular example, I guess. But what are the ways you would like to see um, people with lived experience engaged in research? Uh, well, at the end of this reform period, by 2032, I would like to see a Department of Lived Experience Studies in Victoria with um, various courses. I'd like to see people being um, educated in various uh, lived experience specialties, uh, you know, like uh, research and evaluation. I'd like to see peer support be lifted to the university for those people who are interested in getting more academic about it. You know, so I'd love to see all these specialties developing and and a presence in the academy, an, an independent presence. I think at the moment a lot of uh, lived experience academics have been sort of working off the coattails of, um, you know, clinical academics. Mm. And while those clinical academics have done a, a good job at... Um, kick-starting the whole thing, I think there needs to be a much more independent and sort of powerful presence in the universities and tertiary institutions. So, do, do, you think the, do you think the Collaborative Centre will do some of that? I hope so. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Mary, I, I can't resist it because... Uh, I, but do you think psychiatry has a future? Oh, I think psychiatry has a, a future not at the hub of the system, but as one of the spokes. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I, think, um, I think it's been a problem having psychiatry at the hub of the system. I think that uh, what, what's happened is that the discourse, uh, the resources and a lot of the decision-making, not so much in recent years, but uh, has gone through psychiatry. You know, when you think about the last 200 years, and the whole lens, that's been the dominant lens. And I think it's really had a, a narrowing impact on the way services are delivered and on the mindsets they're delivered with. Mary, I think that's an absolutely excellent spot for us to, <laughs> to, to sort of stop and say, you know, stay tuned for the next episode because... What you've just said, of course, really opens a lot of debate about not just psychiatry, but also also other areas, yeah. you know, health in short, and, yeah. and the whole sort of mental illness and treatment compared with um, areas of psychological distress. And, 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 you know, again, as a person who's worked um, in public, the public system, I've seen people in great torment and great distress and that has been alleviated by treatment and even treatments including electroconvulsive treatment which I'm sure you might have views about as well so um, look I, I, I think we're probably out of time and I'm just going to say a big thank you to Mary for joining with me and for being so open and thank you to all of our listeners uh, for joining us on this episode of MHPN presents in conversation with and you've been listening to me Ruth Vine and and to Mary O'Hagan we hope you've enjoyed this conversation I hope it's raised some really interesting areas for further discussion and debate I think I'm right in saying that MHPN has put some uh, resources regarding both Mary and myself on the landing page and you, there might be some hyperlinks there you'll also find there a link to a feedback survey we would be very grateful for you to fill that in and, and give us some feedback about whether you found 
uh, our conversation helpful and any suggestions about how we or MHPN can meet your needs. So stay tuned for further episodes. I, I really enjoy these conversations and I absolutely thank you for your commitment to and engagement with interdisciplinary person-centred mental health care. So goodbye from me and thank you. Bye. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 